Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, welcome, welcome out there. We are coming down to the home stretch as regards April. And I hope all of you in the in the United States, we know we have listeners from around the globe, but I hope those in the U.S. that you got your taxes done, the last day, uh, unless you get an extent, got an extension, was uh, April the 18th, which was Tuesday. So that's a, that's a, like a final final reminder. Uh, if you didn't get an extension, it was April the 18th. So we're now he- headed toward the end of April, and it's gorgeous here in Georgia and getting ready to go into to May, deeper in the spring. And before you know it, we'll be, we'll be in the summer. Time passes so quickly before I drop this thought uh, from off the shelf into you. I, I cannot stress enough. When I was a kid, it seemed like it took a year forever to go by. But after you get older and you get obligations and things to do, time passes so quickly. I cannot stress this enough. If there's something you know you're supposed to do, and Yolanda Adams sings the songs, if, if you know and that reminder keeps coming up, it could be starting a business, it could be writing a book, it could be be doing consulting work, it could be doing public speaking, it's something you need to do in your family, somebody you need to forgive, somebody you need to reach out to, I, I really wouldn't put it off because time passes so quickly. Before you know it, you'll be saying all these things you didn't do and it could be too late. That's the number one regret that humans have. Number one, number one regret not that they had more money, but there's something I knew I should have done, and I'm out of time. So I want to drop this thought in your spirit, and it is the pessimist sees difficulty and every opportunity. So I hope that you don't do that. Yes, there's two sides to things, but see yourself victorious, even coming through the challenges that you're going to come through with pearls and lessons. But the pessimist sees difficulty in every opportunity, and that's why a lot of people don't get started. Don't don't be that don't be that person. See the opportunity and see what's in you, what God put in you, and go after it. I want to welcome you again this Saturday, April 22nd, to the winning book radio show, Off the Shelf, 13 years, 13 years, you guys. And I want to thank all of our loyal listeners who've been with us from Blake Radio, where they play that smooth jazz, over here to Blog Talk Radio, 13 years. So thank you. And I ask you, and I ask this on the on the show often, how good of a mystery sleuth are you? Are you good at finding out who did something before it either airs on a television show or they reveal it in a movie or the author reveals it in their book? I also want to ask you how important relationships are you to you, and not just a romantic relationship, but relationships between parents, siblings, your colleagues, your friends. All of these relationships are shaping you, all of them. And this, if you will see that in Love for Over Me, there's also a murder mystery in Love for Over Me, and I would love for you to get a copy of Love for Over Me in print, or ebook, you can get it at Amazon.com, Barnes and Noble, ebook it. Rare books in Trenton, rare and classic books in Trenton carries it. Walmart. All you have to do, if you don't see it on the shelf, just ask the clerk. Say, I'd like to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me by Denise Turney, 
and they can get a copy for you because it's carried by the largest book distributors in the world. I hope you'll go out and get a copy of Love for Me. I think the lowest I've seen it was for like a dollar ninety nine, believe it or not, an ebook. And the book is over three hundred pages. So I hope you go out and get a copy again of Love for Over Me. By yours truly and let me know how you enjoyed it. And now let us go and meet our special our very special off the shelf guest. And I'll tell you, this guest came to me last week and I'm so glad that I learned about her. You know, we cross each other's paths and unexpected ways, but there's a lady I, who's been on Off the Shelf several times, and may, she may come on again this year, and her name is Lisa Watson, and she's a publicist for the RT. They have a convention. They have several of them around the country, and there's one coming up in Atlanta that I want to touch on before um, before this show wraps up. But you can learn more about this convention at rtconvention.com. It's going to be taking place, the RT Book Lovers Convention, May the 2nd through the 7th at the Hyatt Regency Atlanta. And tickets and information are still available, again, at rtconvention.com. If you love books, this would be a great event to get out and get to. And so Lisa Watson is one of the publishers for the event. She's also an author, and that's how I learned about our special guest, who I'm going to introduce to you today and and she's what an accomplished author in the uh romance field. So our special off the shelf guest this morning is Zuri Day. And Zuri Day is the national best-selling author of almost two dozen novels, including the popular Drakes of California series and the fan favorite Morgan Men tr- trilogy. And that that trilogy earned her a coveted PW Star review, which is which is quite an accomplishment, and her her latest series, Blue Collar Lovers, uh, about this series, Publishers Weekly wrote, Day is boldly bucking the billionaire trend and named the first release, Driving Heat, a spring 2014 top ten romance across all romance genres. Packing Heat is its second offering in the series, is a Romantic Times Best Contemporary Award finalist and Day is a winner of Emma and the African American Literary Awards Show Best Romance Awards. And those are just a few of the awards she's won. She's also a multiple Romantic Times Best Multicultural Fiction Finalist. And in 2015, uh, the Drakes of California, that series of hers, the one of the books in the series, Crystal Caress, won an Emma for the a Book of the Year Award. And her work has been featured in national publications, including RT Book Lovers, Publishers Weekly, Sheen, Juicy, and USA Today. And Zuri Day's latest book is Lavish Loving, uh, off-the-shelf listeners. You can find out more about Zuri Day. And she kept it real simple at ZuriDay.com. And that's Z as in Zoo, Z-U-R-I. D A Y dot com. Very easy. Z Z U R I D A Y dot com. You can bookmark it. You can go over there now, even as you listen to today's show and learn more about Zuri Day and her books. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Zuri. Well, thank you so much, Denise. Girl, you started that show out with 
fire with the encouraging <laughs> words and and for dropping all kind of nuggets and knowledge. I know we're going to have a good time. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's such a pleasure. And I always like to start the show with a, a few similar questions to, for each of our guests. And we've had some phenomenal guests on Off the Shelf. And I tell people all the time, some of our guests have shocked me. One has been on CNN, a regular. He's now on TV One. I've, we've had guests who have regional top TV shows, and I'm just honored. The New York Times best-selling authors, we're just so honored. Um, so it's a pleasure to have you join this list of, of writers and guests here on Off the Shelf. So this is one of the questions I ask each of our guests because I like to give our listeners backstory on our guests before we just go right into the questions. So can sure. you tell Off the Shelf listeners, Zuri, where you grew up, if you can tell our listeners where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up. Well, I, um, I grew up between Jamaica, Ocho Rios, and uh, a little town in Kansas. Um, relatives uh, on both sides were, you know, in the different places. And so I kind of bopped between the two, which afforded me the opportunity to see the world in um, a well-rounded way. And I had, I guess you could almost call it an idyllic upbringing. And I say that because um, I, you know, today's kids seem to have so much on them and and they are exposed to so much at a really early age and things like that and that was not my experience I really had the opportunity to be a kid so um, it was a a typical upbringing in that way you know just being able to play have fun uh, and not have a lot of responsibilities I I had a naivete about me that uh, I actually try to hang on to even to today because um, a naivete affords me the opportunity to think the best about a person or a situation, you know, before uh, actually meeting them or actually going into the situation. I tend to have the most positive outlook and the best outlook. And I think that's because growing up, I experienced for the most part, people that I met being really who they said they were, people saying what they meant and meaning what they say, and, and actually having um, my best interest as a child um, uh, at heart. I grew up feeling that I was a part of, uh, feeling that my family was the community. Um, in, in small places, islands like Jamaica, and in small towns, uh, like the one I grew up in in Kansas, your family extended past your blood relatives. Um, and when, for instance, if there was someone, a grown-up, in, you know, the midst of you, that person was basically your parent, <laughs> whether or not they were your blood or not. So that that meant that if you were doing something wrong, you know, they let you know, and their word was as powerful as my mother's word or my father's word. And on the other side of that, 
it felt like everyone was your family. So I grew up feeling secure and and safe because even if I'm running around, um, you know, all over the place, it, I knew everyone I was coming in contact with. So that afforded me the opportunity to explore and to be a kid and to wander and to dream and to do it in an atmosphere of relative safety, which I think um, was a great foundation and and part of helped nourish the seed implanted in me to be a creative artist. So um, wow! I'm, oh my goodness! I'm, yes. You know, and, 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 and we've had other people from different parts of the country, but even here in the U.S., when I have guests on who grew up around the 70s, 60s, 70s, they all share that 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 community, sense of community. I don't know. I think technology is pulling us away from that. We have to find a way to keep it. But people who grew up, because that's what I was when I grew up. You You knew your neighbors. They, everybody knew everybody, and people looked out for each other. That all I said, you said so. This safety, this this like cocoon, love, support, nurturing environment you came up in. Uh, in the midst of this, what did you dream of? I know you said it really encouraged your creative creativity, but what did you dream of becoming when you were a kid? What were your earliest dreams like? Did you think I want to be an a- astronaut? I want to be a scientist, or those early? This is what I want to do when you were a kid. I always tended to uh, my dreams always tended toward the artistic side. Um, so uh, you know, I believe that everyone comes into the world with a purpose, and. Uh, and mine, you know, was definitely clear, I think, from my earliest childhood. Now, what form that took changed depending on the day or the way the wind was blowing. It could be a dancer. It could be a um, a fashion designer one day. It could be a ballerina the next day. It could be a concert pianist on Thursday. And then on Friday, I'd want to be a teacher because I would like, you know, a class <laughs> I <laughs> So I was not that kid who knew with certainty from a very early age exactly the lane that they would be in. And I always marvel when I hear people say, you know, uh, I knew from the age of four that I was going to be X, Y, Z, and they followed that path straight on into that profession. Mine was definitely not like that. Um, for instance, I never said I would be an author uh, at ah. all. That's the one part of the art world that I never <laughs> imagined or even aspired to, quite frankly, um, but always somewhere in the arts. So can you tell us before we start talking about, I want to talk a little bit about the convention and then go into your books. How old were you? when you knew you wanted to be a writer, you've written, written so many books, and what or who inspired you to pursue writing? Uh, actually, I was approached uh, by someone who wanted uh, a project done. I was working in radio, and 
Uh, and as an actor, that is my, my background, and I'm still an actor and uh, producer, radio and film and stage. And they knew that I was a writer because I was writing stage plays and screenplays, and so they approached me about a writing project. And because I I am a writer, I and because I am also a voracious reader, I have always loved the written word in terms of reading it, in terms of quoting it, um, poetry from a very early age, etc. I felt that it was something I could do. And sure enough, I I could. And uh, and then when I was asked if I could write romance, I thought, well, absolutely, because as a preteen, that was the first, uh, I guess you can say, grown-up book that I read was uh, was one of my older sister's uh, romance novels. So it was a kind of like accidentally on purpose is how mm. I entered career. Yes. So somebody asked you to just to write, you were a play. Here you're writing uh, movies and you're in radio and somebody just came up to you and encouraged you to write a book or they asked you mm-hmm. to asked write a book or write. as part of a project you were yes. you were working on. Yes, uh, they asked me one for their particular project because they knew I was a writer. They they knew they had seen plays that I had done um, when I worked in radio, I worked in many positions. I was in radio for over 10 years, um, but one of uh, my first jobs was as the news and entertainment editor. So they knew that I wrote the news and, you know, they saw newspaper articles that I wrote, etc. So they knew I was a writer. Um, they did not uh, perhaps differentiate the difference between a writer and an author, you know, like someone who writes for journalism and someone who writes books, right. but they just knew I did. And so they asked if I could do this project. And because I always knew that I was a writer, I said yes, not because I was an author. And, thing, you know, one thing led to another, and, and it traversed into the writing of romance novels. Uh, wow! So that first book, you, that project must have really done well. I'm assuming. I'm assuming, which kind of leads into my next question, because if the the project had to have done well for you to say I can actually do this, I want to say congratulations first of all on your on your book awards and Publishers Weekly for years was considered the bible of the of the book industry. What did it feel like winning all these awards? You usually you came into this almost happenstance. Uh, somebody asked you to work on a project and now you're winning these awards and a con- con- again congratulations. What did it feel like winning these awards and seeing actually seeing your work in Publishers Weekly? Wow. Um First of all, Denise, thank you so much. Thank you so much for um, for the congratulations because it is um, very validating as an author to receive the uh, any type of recognition for your work. So I think that's the first word that would come to mind on how I felt would be validated. Um, I heard you say that you as well are an an author in your introduction. So you know that the process of writing a novel is 
a solitary one. And Mm -hmm. it is you and, well, for me, I I do know that there are authors who have beta readers and there are writers who write, have critique groups and and different um, uh, types of human interaction as their story is developing, but that is not my situation, and it never has been. Uh, my book gets re- my book is finished and turned directly into my editor. So the so for that time that I am writing the book and shaping the story, uh, it is just me, myself, and I, and normally several characters in my head talking about what. <laughs> <laughs> about what this is, what this baby is going to look like, you know, what the baby is going to wear and the hair and all of this stuff. And then you pass your your baby off to the, I call my editor, my midwife, to the midwife. And you don't know at that point what, um, you know, what the reaction will be. And uh, and sometimes I'm not always sure, like, oh, it's amazing. They're going to just love it, love it, love it. That's not always my, my feeling because I, I've talked with several authors, and during the process of writing a book, we say that if you don't hate it, at least once, you know, in doing the process, you you probably haven't pushed enough, you know, because it's like at one point you're like, oh, my God, this is the most amazing story. And then maybe a third of the way through you're like, oh, this is horrible. Who had this idea? This is, you know. <laughs> and then, like, maybe two-thirds of the way through you're like, I don't like this hero. And then you're like, I love the heroine. You know what I mean? You go through all of these mm-hmm. emotions. Yes, yes. And with process. And so when you hand it off, it's just a, you know, what I do, I do the absolute best that I can, and then I hand it off, and it's really depending on, you know, the person of uh, and the people and their experiences and what filters the story is coming through for them on on what they feel about it. And so when I um, received awards for the stories, it was so validating, and it also was um, it also made me so grateful that they got it, like they got the story or they got the character or they, you know, they understood the work that went to making that story so special, you know. And um, and it also encourages me always to to do a better book the next time. So it's validating, it's in- Inspiring, you know, it, it, it fills me with gratitude and uh, overall just a really, really good feeling. Uh, yeah, I say that if you can win, if you can win an award, try to try to do it because it's a great feeling. <laughs> okay, okay. Now, one more question before we start talking about your your books. Uh, the the RT Book Lovers Convention again for our listeners is taking place May the 2nd through the 7th, which is only a few weeks away, and it will be at the Hyatt Regency in Atlanta. For those interested in tickets and more information on it, you can click over to RT, and that's R as in run, T as in tumble, rtconvention.com. So I want to ask you, um, how did you get involved with the RT Book Lovers Convention, and how can people attending, readers, find you if they want to either buy and or have you sign a copy of one of their books? 
Well, um, Romantic Times Book Lovers Convention is the number one, far and away, the number one event, reader event in the romance community. So one of the things that um, one quickly learns if, if uh, show business or entertainment is their career, which it is mine and has been for over 20 years, um, you learn that the creating part is only a very small part of the business. And then I say it's something like 2080. Um, the writing of the novel or the writing of the play or whatever the creative art form is, is about 20% of the business. And then networking and branding and presenting yourself, promoting, marketing is the 80. So what I did right away um, with the encouragement of my agent as well, who has been in the business, oh, my gosh, like over 25 years when I met her 10 years ago, she um, encouraged me to look out for those conferences and conventions and expos where I can band my brand and grow my brand with new readers. So the Romantic Times Book Lovers Convention averages about 2,500 um, attendees each year, and they come from all over the world, literally. Uh, and it is the biggest party. It is like five straight days of parties because it's a reader event. So all of the major publishers are there. And they have events where their authors are signing and giving away books. That is a huge attraction to the convention because while the, if you want to attend the entire convention, um, the registration is, is high as, um, as registrations go or as conferences go. Or, oh, it depends. If you're used to going to conferences, you may not think that it's very high. It averages around $450, $500. But if you are familiar with going, with comp going to conferences, then, you know, you may not blanch at that price. But what is gotten in return are so many books that people often have to ship. You know, in fact, they have a shipper right there on site always because there are so many books that are, are given away that people end up shipping them home. And that's because the publishers are all there and they will host a party and they will invite the reader and then the readers get to go. It's like a room full of authors. Like imagine if you will, if you are a voracious reader, <laughs> imagine if you will, uh, an event where there are around 400 authors, romance authors, including the top best-selling authors in the business, all in one place. And then imagine that all day for like five days you get to go from room to room to room and pick up three books and have your favorite author sign them. That's basically wow. what our team and then imagine that after that is over, then at night there's going to be a theme party. You know, one night it's the Roaring Twenties. Uh, one night it is um, a, a mystery, a masquerade, or it is an event such as myself and several 
um, African-American authors, including two of uh, what we consider romance royalty, Brenda Jackson and Beverly Jenkins, are putting on an event along with myself, um, Nikki Knight, Cheryl Lister, um, uh, there's 11 of us total, and we're putting on an event called City Chicks, Southern Bells, and Bad Boys. And so, <laughs> for that event, <laughs> and so for that event, you know, some of us will be dressed as city chicks, and then for me, I have like a tool skirt and this big hat. I'm going to be a southern girl. And... Um, and in people party and win prizes, we came up with a dance that's similar to the wobble, but it's our dance called the romance dance that we're going to be teaching. So it's just all kinds of fun, and you really cannot uh, truly understand it unless you actually go, because it is just beyond what I could even describe. And I, I want to also add, that there is one day on Saturday that um, there is what's called a giant book fair. And that is where literally all 400 or so, three to 400 um, authors are in one room and just row after row after row after row of authors. And that event is open to the public. I don't even think there is a fee to get in. If there is, it may be something like $5 or something very small, but it, and it may be free. I'm, I apologize for not having the correct information, but that is an event that is open to the public so that anyone that is listening to your show in the Atlanta area or in any of the surrounding areas can come down and have an opportunity to meet some of your favorite authors, such as those that I have already mentioned, and also to browse the aisles and learn of new authors. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Lisa would be very big fan of a minute. Could you mention RT Book Lovers Convention? Zuri knocked the ball out the park. Are you kidding? So you, you really you – really, uh, described uh, very very well i can i can literally see things happening now for our, our off the shelf listeners who just chopping at the bits every day can you tell <laughs> us where did you get the idea to create the book series on the drakes of california Ah, oh my gosh thank you for asking that question because i love the drakes and i just finished the last book in the series. Book number 10 is going to be the final book with the youngest brother. Oh, so um, the Drakes of California, again, and this is important for me to share, um, when one is operating in their purpose, and just doing what they can do, where they can do it, that is when the magic happens and things show up. Um, I am what one calls like a woo-woo chick. So I be, I, I'm a spiritualist, and I believe in spirit and in um, the truth that one can have what they desire, that if, they're, if what they think and what they speak 
is um, put together with appropriate action, it will manifest into that thing which one desires if it is in line with your purpose. I say that because if you're just desiring like something crazy, you know, or, or, or something nefarious, you know, you can't sit there and, and do that. But if you're, if you're in line with your purpose, it can happen. So what happened with the, uh, how this started with Kimani is um, Harlequin Kimani is uh, one of those um, uh, recognitions that you mentioned earlier, Denise, um, in RT Magazine was seen by a Harlequin editor. And they reached out to me. Uh, again, I, I let go this whole journey. I never reach out. They reach out <laughs> to me. Um, but um, they, I got an email saying, hey, congratulations on your award, and would you like to write for us? And wow. I actually thought it was um, uh, fake. I thought someone was playing a joke on me. Actually, I really did. And I, I sent it to my um, agent, and I said, I don't think this is real or, or something like that. You know, I'm glad I didn't delete it in hindsight because I really, cause I'm thinking, Harlequin, like, reach out to me like this. You know, who does that? Uh, but she said, no, this looks legitimate. I would answer and um, so I did, and um, and subsequently was signed to Harlequin. And at the time, I was living uh, part time in Southern California's wine country, which is a town called Temecula, California. It is between Los Angeles and San Diego, almost in the middle, but a little bit closer to San Diego than Los Angeles. It is an absolutely beautiful part of California that has, at this point, probably 30 to 40 vineyards. Uh, at the time, they had a couple dozen vineyards. And so it was just a beautiful place for an artist to be inspired. And when I was asked, um, the first deal was for a tree book only. And um, when I was asked to come up with, you know, some ideas, potential themes for the book, it was a no-brainer. I immediately thought of the wine country that I lived in, and um, and I decided um, I don't know how I came up with the name Drake. There was no like real revelation, or you know, sometimes I have a story to accompany how a name came to me, like I had a dream or something like that. That didn't happen here. I think maybe I was just thinking of a strong name. Uh, I don't I don't remember <laughs> honestly what what brought that on, but. Um, I knew that I wanted them to be the most successful wine uh, winery or vineyard in Temecula, and I wanted them, in order to expand the idea, I developed it into a resort, not just a vineyard, but it's called the Drake Wines Resort and Spa. And um, I knew that I wanted to, to be like, all about luxury and the multimillionaire, um, the very, very successful family that is close-knit, that isn't filled with dysfunction, that has high level of operating and intelligence and integrity and loyalty, but also know how to have fun at the same time. So that was the premise for those first um, three books. And then the success of those three books 
led me to having to find cousins in Northern California to the series. Okay, you had to get some more people in there because you had to write more books. So it started out. Did you intend from the beginning to turn it into a book series? Yes, I, I did. Um, uh, the Kamani uh, brand, most of the authors, not all, but most of the books uh, in the Kamani series or in the Kamani imprint are series because their research shows that readers love to get to know families. And um, a series is a great way to have a continuity to a family but have a new and standalone story at the same time. So, for instance, anyone who reads any of the now nine books in this series can pick up any book and not feel that they have jumped in the middle of an already plain movie. They can pick it up and it's fresh because each book is about a different character, I mean a different sibling in the family. So okay. each book is that person's story and that person alone. However, those who have read the entire series will see names that they recognize, or they will hear about what is going on now in book five with someone that they met in book one. But if the person who is reading book five has not read the first four beforehand, they'll read the name like, oh, this is just an, another character that is being discussed in the book. So it's the, you don't lose anything by not reading them in order. However, some readers just like reading their series in order. And if that's the case, then that's fine, too. Now, can and you I give us a brief... Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, and for the writer, um, series are often um, very... At least I can speak of me personally. I like writing in, in series because it gives us a chance, too, to have depth and to give more depth to the storyline, to the characters, because you don't have to try to put everything into one book. And these are not books where there is a cliffhanger at the end and you have to go to the next book to find out what happens. No, these books are all, everything happens in each book. It's not that type of series where, um, you know, where you, that you purposely leave a cliffhanger so that they'll read the next one. It's not the same. Okay. Can you give us a brief synopsis, Uri, of Lavish Loving? Now, that this is, is this the final book in the Drakes of California series, Lavish Loving? No, it's book number nine. It's book number oh, nine. Oh, okay. Um, it, uh, it actually, uh, those who are in the Harlequin Club have already received their copy, um, but it uh, technically or uh, officially um, releases May First, so Lavish Loving is number nine of ten books in the Drakes of California series. And Lavish Loving is about the youngest daughter of the Northern California Drakes named London. 
And London's story was really fun to write because she is the rebel of the family. The Northern California Drakes have made their money in real estate, unlike the Southern California relatives who made their money, you know, with the vineyard. Um, the Northern California's uh, business is real estate and, and architecture, and they live in a fictional town called Paradise Cove in Northern California that is about an hour, a little over an hour away from the San Francisco-Oakland area. And London raised so much havoc growing up in that town that when she was like 13 years old, 13, 14, 15, somewhere in there, um, her parents sent her off to boarding school, to a boarding school in Switzerland. Uh, but as fate would have it, uh, she was actually discovered while over there and developed a superstar modeling career. So through most of the series, uh, readers have only caught glimpses of London when she's happened to be in town. But in this uh, book, she has decided to take a break um, from modeling and actually spend some time with her family. And while back in California, she reconnects with a former model that she knew from back in the day who has now retired and become a successful fashion designer named Ace Montgomery. And Ace has, for the first time, designed a line for women that he will be unveiling at this year's fashion weeks across the world. And when he sees London, he knows instantly that she's the muse to wear this line. But there is a hesitation because he knows what a troublemaker, like London has a reputation, okay? <laughs> She's not the easiest person to work with, which is the case with a lot of superstars uh, and a lot of highly, highly successful people. They can also be temperamental as well. So, um, so he's cautious about whether or not to employ her to represent the line, and she's not sure that she wants to do it at any rate because she has just promised her family that she was going to take a break from modeling and uh, because of a couple of other reasons as well that the readers will discover as they get into the book. But if you like travel, if you like fashion at all, um, I actually have a degree in fashion merchandising, and so I was able to go into a world that I love. That was another dream. When you asked me what did I want to be when I grow up, mm -hmm. that was another thing, a fashion designer and a boutique owner, and I actually oh. did pursue that um, college, yes. Um, and so this was, uh, again, a really fun book for me to write because I was able to go back into that world and, and kind of live through London, um, that lifestyle. If you love fashion, if you love travel, if you love intrigue, because there is some intrigue and some suspense that takes place in the book, and, of course, if you love love and happily ever afters, then you will absolutely adore lavish loving. Now, and lavish loving, uh, this might it might not have been in this series, perhaps in a previous one. So London's a successful model, and Ace is a former model. He's now a fashion designer, and he's now got this idea when he sees London that she would be great 
to to present his new line. But what happened to London and Ace the first time around? I mean, they've they've met before, and what? So what happened the first time around? How much time has passed since they last saw each other? When they see each other, and and Lavis loving for the first it time, it has been uh, about six or seven years. Six oh. or seven years seen each other because um, he retired. He actually came into modeling as m- most models do. Actually, if uh, anyone is familiar with the modeling business knows that the average model that we're seeing in the high fashion magazines such as Vogue and Mademoiselle and uh, magazines like that, they're like 15, 16 years old, 14, you know, they're, they're, with the makeup and everything. I think sometimes people assume that they're at least in their 20s, but no, you know, if you don't, if you are in your 20s when you are beginning your modeling career, then most agencies will look to look at you as if you're too old to start. That is how the, the industry is. And so he was modeling. Um, he was actually uh, encouraged by his art teacher, by a teacher at school, to send his, um, his work and his pictures and stuff off to New York. And, um, and he was subsequently kind of discovered that way at the age of 15. And so by the time he was 21, 22, uh, he was all out with the, with the, you know, the whole travel. And he was a superstar model. So that's a lot of, you know, a lot of um, publicity and, you know, just the cameras and just the whole lifestyle is, is, is very fast-paced. So he had left the fashion industry and become – a successful fashion designer. And so when he left that world and left Europe and returned to California because he grew up in Oakland, then that is what um, separated them. But the the top end of the modeling community, like in most um, communities, it's a small circle. It's that way in every art uh, mm-hmm. and probably even business, that it's a small world and most of yep. them – know each other if only um, in passing or if only casually they know each other or definitely know of each other. And uh, that's basically how um, Ace and London's encounters were. And I say basically because in reading the book, uh, the readers will discover a a little more that, um, uh, that made their background memorable, you know, you know, that made her remember, oh, yeah, I remember him. Um, there's now, a, they, there's they, a were more, they were more than just co-workers, though. They were teenagers, you say, and that's when a lot of us start to venture out into our first serious relationship. Were, were they more than colleagues? When they both were modeling before Ace, you know, went down the fashion designer world, and I'm assuming in lavish mm-hmm. Loving, they're both at this time what in the mid to late twenties. Yes, they're in the late twenties. Uh, uh, Ace is in his late twenties. He's uh, like two or three years older um, than London. Um, and not to give too much of the story away, but they they weren't even really co-workers. It's just that they traveled in the same circles. They didn't do 
um, uh, they didn't do shows together per se, uh, but they would be in different cities because in the Fashion Week circuit, um, there are often a lot of the same models that are because designers have their muses, you know, and so they have the people that they want to walk in each of their shows. And the four major shows are New York, Milan, Paris, and London. And so at least in those four shows uh, during the fall fashion week and the spring fashion week, a lot of the models will see each other. And then there are parties that the designers will hold and that, you know, fashion houses will hold, and they will see each other in these social settings or private clubs, you know, just kind of their world, if you will, that these two cross paths. And so that's the history that they shared um, in the beginning, but it was right at that time, like after only a brief time of being in the business together, Ace retires and uh, and decides to become a fashion designer. So their interaction from 10 years ago or um, from six or seven years ago, I'm sorry, is is rather brief but memorable. Okay. So, so – who so far, well, the book hasn't come out yet, but some of the people who are book club members, have any of them read Lavish Loving? And if so, what are they telling you? Who are they telling you? Are their favorite characters? What are you hearing back so far from people who've read this Lavish Loving in regards to who they tell you they like the most and who do they like to not like the most in Lavish Loving? Mm-hmm. I have not had any um, personal um, feedback because um, the book has only been read um, to this point. Because you know, like I said, I don't I don't do beta readers or critique partners or any of that. So literally, my book uh, book does not get read until it's read by the editor. And I can tell you that my editor at Harlequin um, Kamani absolutely adored um, the story, Um, and I have already gotten a couple of reviews on Amazon, and those are obviously from people who are a member of the club of the, um, uh, if you are a part of the Harlequin Book Club, then you get four books every month, you know, automatically, and they get their books one um, month or at least two weeks earlier than the public. That's one of the uh, caveats or one of the, you know, the perks of being um, a book club member is that you get the book a little bit earlier. Um, And so I can just tell you that one uh, reviewer said, what more can a deliciously sexy man like Ace Montgomery want other than for the delightful sexy siren London Drake to walk in his creations during fashion, fashion week? Oh, yeah, to be seduced by her. Travel from New York to Milan to London for a wild walk on the catwalk and see what London has in store for Ace. You will enjoy every step. That's what one um, U.S. said. Yeah, actually, Martha Ruff, her name is here. Martha Ruff um, put that review just on April 18th and the the 22nd. And on the 19th, Felicia Stewart said, this book was amazing. Five stars. Ah. So that's what so far. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I'm sure when it's released, 
people will probably give you feedback on the characters. Readers well, always have a character, a character they love, a character they really don't like. I'm, I'm sure you will start to to get that that feedback. With less than ten minutes to go, and I had so many other questions to ask you, but what inspired you to write Crystal Caress? I know you write uh, you're doing a book series, but the particular story, Lavish Loving gave you a chance to revisit your own passion for fashion. But what inspired you to write Crystal Caress? Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for asking that. That story was inspired by a cruise I went on with Brenda Jackson, the legendary queen of romance, Brenda Jackson, and her readers. Um, she is my uh, one of my heroes, Mrs. Jackson is. And when I found out, she does a cruise every other year for her readers. And one of my bucket lists, is to visit all of 50. I'm an, I love travel. That is another passion of mine. I love international travel especially, but I also had a, have a desire to visit all 50 states. And I, uh, I'm on, I think I have like maybe eight more to go or eight or nine okay. more to go. Yes. And one of the states, of course, is Alaska. And I always thought, That'll be the last date I go to because, you know, like I, I have no, I don't, you don't just happen to be in Alaska. You have to plan to go there. And so when I found out that her cruise was to Alaska, it was, oh, my gosh. And so I, I told her, Brenda, I think I'm going to go on your cruise. And she's so gracious and just such a, a, a giving person, a, one who shares her, her journey and her information and her advice. She actually invited me along as a featured author. So I was on the cruise and we visited Alaska, um, several ports in Alaska, including uh, Juneau, which is uh, part of where the story takes place. And that was the inspiration. Uh, Alaska is absolutely beautiful, which is something that I just didn't, you know, particularly think of. I, I mean, I didn't think it was ugly. I just didn't think of it at all, really, I guess. Uh, but it's it's really beautiful. And I knew uh, when looking at all of that beauty that there would be a story that took place there. Wow. Can you introduce us to Atka? What, what is he like, and, and why does Teresa fall for him? Atka was directly inspired by a bus driver, a tour bus driver in Juneau, who was a native Alaskan. And he, with pride, let us know that he was a full-blooded native. And he was a full-blooded native Alaskan, which is... um, through the Native American lineage, I do believe. And um, so I knew that my hero would have some Alaskan heritage. So uh, Atka's father is um, Native, uh, Native, is African American. I'm sorry. His father is African American. His mother is Native Alaskan. Um, So he has a very strong sense of both heritages, especially his native heritage because he's very close to his grandparents. Um, And so people will 
see a little bit of the Yupik language, which is what this bus driver spoke to us. He spoke to us and he, he gave us some phrases in Yupik. So um, that intrigued me. And so I threw a little Yupik in there for everybody. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then Teresa is, uh, she is a journalist, even though her family is in real estate, she really wants to write. And she begs her father into letting her have a leave of absence where she can pursue her dream. And so she gets a job at the um, at the local newspaper, and she is assigned the travel and art section. And she has visions of New York and California and Hawaii. And her first uh, her first assignment is to Alaska. And she's like, "What?" <laughs> she's like, "Not excited to go there at all." It was not what she had in mind when she was thinking uh-huh. of beaches and. <laughs> and uh, so she goes there, and and that's how they meet. Okay, okay. So so we 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 we're not going to to give the story away. Which one is this in the series? Nine is lavish loving. Yes, uh, Crystal Caress is book number six. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And then give, give us before I, I I we start wrapping up. Give us the title of. Book seven. I know if you go through the whole series, could you quickly tell us from the first book to the tenth for people who might be first learning of you and they might want to read every book in the series? Absolutely. Well, I, I will definitely let you know that you can go to zuriday.com where every book and a synopsis and a link is on right on the website. But very quickly, if I can run down them fast, it's um, Diamond Dreams, Champagne Kisses, Platinum Promises, Solid Gold Seduction, Secret Silver Nights, Crystal Caress, Silken Embrace, Sapphire Attraction, and Lavish Loving. And when will the last book, are you working on the 10th book in the series, which will be the final books in the Drakes of California series, are you working on that now? Because you're just releasing, Lavish Loving is just coming out next month. Have you already yep. started working on the 10th book? It is finished. In fact, if you go on Amazon and put in the title Decadent Desire, um, it's already up for pre-order. It comes out on November 1st. Wow. Oh, my goodness. You are one book writing. Girl, <laughs> I'm a book. I'm a book. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> where can where can off the shelf listeners? We know at Amazon, but tell us some other places where our listeners can get copies of your books, and let us know if they're in ebook, print, audio, whichever format they can get them in. Yes, you can get them everywhere books are sold. Um, depending on where you live is depending on what types of books are stocked in the stores. But this is through a traditional publisher, so they are available wherever books are sold. As Denise said earlier, if they are not in the bookstore near you, then you simply have to recommend it because it's in the system. So you can get them uh, also available on Kindle or Nook or your EPUB choice. And then some of them are in Audible, but the entire series is not in Audible. Uh, I'm actually trying to rectify that as we speak um, to um, assuage my my actor child who has been neglected in these past years. Uh, I'm I'm actually going to start doing some of the uh, the audio books that have not been picked up by 
um, companies such as Audible. So you would just have to go to online to see which ones, because I don't have that right in front of me, which ones are in Audible, but they are all available in print and ebook at least. Okay, can you tell us uh, where people can find you online? What social media networks? Where can folks connect with you online? I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and all of those links are on my website, zuriday.com. So once you go to my website, you will see all of those links all on the first page. I try to make it as easy as possible in this world of 50,000 social media apps you can, you can now access. <laughs> um, I try to make it easy and just put it all at ZuriDay.com as opposed to saying, you know, Facebook.com at ZuriDay and it's have a Zuri Day. Everything is have a Zuri Day because Zuri means beautiful. So if I tell people to have a Zuri Day, I'm telling you to have a beautiful day. Um, so all of the information about how to uh, contact me via social media, I do encourage you to uh, Friend me, follow me um, on all of those platforms, uh, but go to Zuri Day, and that's where you can also sign up for my newsletter that is starting back up this summer. Um, all things Zuri, you can come to ZuriDay.com. We have been just blessed, blessed, blessed to have with us Arthur, the award-winning Arthur Zuri Day. Her work's been in Publishers Weekly and USA Today, Juicy Sheen. Uh, RT Book Lovers, she will be at the May 2nd through 7th RT Book Lovers Conference at the Hyatt in uh, Atlanta, so you can catch her there. And again, as she said, she's the author of The Drakes of California, The Morgan Man Trilogy, The Blue Collar Lovers, just an accomplished author. You can find her online at Zuri Day, Z-U-R-I. D-A-Y.com. Again, that's Z-U-R-I-D-A-Y.com. We have been just so grateful and truly enjoyed today's show. I had a lot more questions to ask, Zuri, but I I'd hardly get through all the questions anyway. The show goes so fast. But want to thank her and wish her the best at the RT Book Lovers Convention. Hopefully, when she explained it, it's like you got to get out to that convention if you love romance books and if you just love books again and it's the the rt book lovers conventions in atlanta at the hyatt may 2nd through the 7th and you can check their website out for more information but but bookmark zuriday.com to keep up with her and she says she's going to be starting her newsletter up again here soon. We want to thank her, and as I, I definitely thank all of our off-the-shelf listeners, and especially our listeners who've been with us throughout our entire 13 years. Just thank you, thank you, thank you. And remember, you're awesome. You're amazing. You are incredible. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. See you back here next Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, where we will bring you another phenomenal guest. Bye for now, and Zuri, I'll shoot you an email. Perfect.